Amen, amen. It's fun to start a new sermon series. Um, I've got a quote to start us off with. Some of you might recognize this quote, if this works. It's not working. It would, right, on a day like today? Um, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. If you don't recognize where that's from, that's from Romeo and Juliet. You know, Juliet's on the balcony, fawning over the thought of Romeo, but she can't be with Romeo because he's a Montague, and their families don't get along. That would be the nice way to put it. But um, we find out, if you continue the story of Romeo and Juliet, maybe this is a pessimistic way of looking at it, but at the end, uh, neither Romeo or Juliet could give up their name. And, uh, and so they end up giving up their life for love, whatever that might mean. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting, too, uh, little did Shakespeare know, but his name would go on to carry so much weight that we use it now as an adjective, right? It's not just his name, Shakespeare, but we refer to works, his works and works like his as being Shakespearean. So that's what we're going to think about today what's in a name. If you ever look into it, there are some surprising correlations between your name and uh, your life, or your name and the, and the life that you experience. Oftentimes, your name is the very first thing that somebody knows about you, and they make uh, generalizations and stereotypes before they ever even get to know you just based off of your name. Um, but it might go beyond just simple stereotypes and generalizations. A 2017 study uh, by uh, a man named Zwebner and his research group found that many of us look like our names. That sounds kind of funny. The study that they did, they had people look at photos of an individual and then try to pick that individual's name off of a list of names. And they found out that the individuals in this study were better at picking names than just chance alone. So it seems like the people fit their name. And so they concluded that the study suggests that facial appearance represents social expectations of how a person with a specific name should look, and then those expectations act as a self-fulfilling prophecy in your life. How interesting is that? My name is Nathan Christopher Walsh. Some of you might be learning my middle name for the very first time. And uh, in case you're wondering, those are the sounds that you make with your mouth when you need to get my attention. Nathan Christopher Walsh. But I'd like to say that that is so much more than, than what my name might suggest. Uh, My last name tells you that I'm part of the Walsh family. And if you were with us during our uh, series called Different, you probably heard me say um, that we teach our kids different families, different things. So this is my wife's way of explaining to our kids when they uh, hear a word that our family doesn't say or they have a friend doing something that our family doesn't do, We just tell them that you're part of the Walsh family, and the Walsh family says and acts different, different families, different things. Further than that, my parents 
wanted to make sure that mine and my brother's names carried a gospel message that would follow us through our lives. So they were very intentional with the way that they named us. My first name is Nathan. And if you remember from the Bible, that was the prophet who was alive during King David. He was the one who confronted David about his uh, sin against Uriah with Bathsheba. And so Nathan sounds like the Hebrew word for give or gave. And so Nathan means gift from God. That's what Nathan means. And then my middle name, Christopher, that's Greek in origin. It was used a lot in the first centuries of the church. Christopher means Christ bearer. So my parents put these two names together and they said that Nathan Christopher means the gift of God is to bear Christ. And so that's the name that has followed me throughout my life. Now, I just recently moved into full-time ministry, but I've been involved in some kind of church work for most of my life. It just seems like I can't get away from it. In fact, after high school, I thought about pursuing um, uh, going to a Christian college and, and possibly going to seminary or pursuing a degree in worship leading or becoming a youth pastor. Um, but if you guys remember from this time about a year ago, we told the whole story. Uh, I decided to take a different route and pursue physics and science. And um, even in pursuing that, I just couldn't get away from this calling. God, I want to be used for your kingdom. And so um, moved to Northwest Arkansas, decided to help plant this church, have always kind of been involved and just love the fact that now that I'm in full-time ministry, I'm really living my name and telling the world that the gift from God is that we, you and I, get to bear Christ and his image. We see the same thing happening with names in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 11, we're introduced to a man named Abram. Genesis chapter 11, we're gonna start in verse 27. It says, this is the account of Terah's family. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. He's important in the story, but not this part. But Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, the land, the land of his birth, while his father Terah was still living. Meanwhile, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Milcah and her sister Iscah were daughters of Nahor's brother Haran. But Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children. Now, it's interesting that the writer kind of threw Sarai under the bus at the end of this. Like, why is it important that we know Sarai uh, was unable to give birth and had no children? Well, if we had read this in the original Hebrew, it would have made a lot more sense. Abram, his name means exalted father. Exalted father. And so we see right here that Abram isn't living up to his name. Right? He has no children to be an exalted father over. Well, in the very next chapter, chapter uh, 12, God doubles down on Abram's name. Check out this promise. I jumped way back to the beginning. Let me see if I can get to the right spot. But, 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 but too far. Right there. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your fa father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So God is going to make Abram into a great nation. Then in chapter 17 of Genesis, God uh, triples down. I don't know if that's a thing. God triples down and uh, changes Abram's name to Abraham. And Abraham in Hebrew means father of a multitude of nations. And so we know the rest of the story. Sarai's name is changed to Sarah, and she gives birth to the son of the promise, Isaac. And Isaac goes on to have a son named Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And Israel is the father of the nation of Israel. So Abraham does become a father of a great nation. But more than that, Israel's son Judah has a descendant named David who becomes king over Israel. And then in David's lineage, God sends his son to earth to make redemption for all. Paul outlines this in his letter to the Romans in chapter nine. He said that when God said to Abraham, you will be a father of a multitude of nations, he's talking about me. He's talking about you. And so Abraham lived up to his name. And so today we're thinking, what's in a name? But being God's people came at a price. Lord Francis Jeffrey, he was a Scottish judge and a literary critic. He lived in the 17 and 1800s. He said this, a good name like goodwill is got by many actions and lost by one. I'll read that again. A good name like goodwill is got by many actions and lost by one. God is not going to lose his good name. We see this all throughout scripture. Because of his name, God could not let his people, the nation of Israel, and their sin go unpunished. This was, this was part of the covenant that he made with Abraham, and then he extended it with the covenant that he made with Moses. And you probably remember this. This is familiar to some of you. The third commandment in the great commandments, this is from Deuteronomy. We read, we must, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Now, many of us learned this is thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain, right? That's the King James Version. Um, the word, the Hebrew word there um, in this passage that's misuse or in the King James Version, take the Lord's name in vain, is a, is a Hebrew word that means to lift up or to carry. And so today we might think that this means don't use God's name as an expletive. And it definitely does, but it means more than that. The Jews extended it to say you shouldn't make empty oaths in God's name or using God as a witness for your promises. But it goes beyond even that. God is warning the Israelites, and that means he's warning us now, you carry my name. Don't misuse it. 
you carry my name, don't misuse it. But even in his punishment, God could not lose his good name. The Old Testament is full of stories of the Israelites sinning, being cast into exile, and God bringing a deliverer. And we find a similar situation uh, during the time of the prophet Ezekiel. The Jews were living in exile, and because they were living in exile, the nations that they were exiled to were kind of mocking God. Like, how could the Israelite God be so great if they're such a scattered people? And uh, Ezekiel has a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. Check this out. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I'm bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I am doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I can't read that top word. Here we go. So you must live as God's Am I? Sorry, guys. I got lost. Here I am. I will show you how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. God is bringing his people home from exile. He is redeeming and renewing his people. That applies to us too. But not because we deserve it, but because of his name. God's going to do all this. So what's in a name? How does this apply to our lives today? We're warned in the Apostle Peter's first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. The people who are reading this would have recognized that the words used there um, comes from a, a passage. Oh, I didn't go to verse 16. For the scriptures say, this passage right here is from the book of Leviticus. You must be holy because I am holy. The readers of this, uh, of this letter would have recognized that the I am used there is the name of God. You must be holy because my name is holy. Not only has he given us his name, but through the sacrifice of his son, he has given us the power to live according to that name. We're part of his family and different families mean different things. Don't go back to your old ways. What's in a name? Secondly, because of his name, he is using his people, that's you and, you and me, to reveal himself and set everything right in the world. The prophet Zechariah has this vision of the future, of this day that he calls the Lord's day. 
And this is what he says in Zechariah 14. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshiped. How awesome is that? I have a name that's only been revealed through relationship with me. Did you guys know that? Molly calls me babe. Most of the time when she says it, it's very endearing. Sometimes when she says it, it's a little convicting. But that name is a name that only Molly calls me because only Molly has that kind of relationship with me. God desires a relationship with us such that we discover his nicknames through our experience with him. Think about that for a second. He desires a relationship with me so that he and I can discover his nicknames, those names which reveal his character. So that's what we're gonna explore in this series. We're gonna be talking throughout scripture. God is in relationship with his people and he reveals his names, descriptions of his character that are found because he is in relationship with his people. The infinite creator of the universe desires an intimate relationship with you. The supreme being whose justice and righteousness are perfect has entangled himself with his imperfect creation such that his virtues are desirable and not just desirable, but through his power are attainable to his imperfect creation. What's in a name? I jumped right back to the beginning again. Application. So how do we, do, how do we respond to that? Well, we have a saying at City Point, and we hope that it isn't a cliche. City Point is a church of small groups, not a church with small groups. You guys heard us say that sometimes? City Point is a church of small groups, not a church with small groups. So we do small groups, and we don't do them to fill up your schedule, right? We all have a busy schedule. Why do we do small groups? Because I want to know God like you know God. And I want you to know God like I know God. The character that he's revealed to me that I get to share occasionally on Sunday mornings, that Jim Bob gets to share from the pulpit, we want you to tell us how you know God. And that's what the purpose of small groups is for. Now, we normally spend the month of September to, uh, to, to launch our small groups. The worship team will make their way up here. Um, we normally spend the month of September to launch our small groups, but we didn't this year. And um, there were a lot of questions why, and the real reason why is our small groups didn't take a break during the summer. So we don't have like new small groups that are starting right now. You guys just need to join the groups that are already happening. And I've got an, an interesting calendar to illustrate that. So our young adults, grade fifth through seven, we call them Uptown. They meet for lunch after church on the fourth Sunday of the month. 
And then we have our youth group, Midtown. That's 7th through 12th grade. They meet every Sunday at 530 here at the building. And it didn't make it on the calendar, but the 22nd, they're going to be taking over on Sunday morning and leading us in worship and giving the communion thought and preaching. So you definitely want to be here on the 22nd. Downtown, that's our 18 to 30 group. They meet every other Thursday at Isaac and Sierra's house. Um, we have a Sunday school group that meets for youth age and older, both men and women, and they meet every other Sunday. They're gonna be meeting this next week. They're studying the book of Romans together. That's before church at 8.30 in the library. The women's ministry meets sometime during the first week of the month and on the third Wednesday of the month. And then they also have a Sunday school that they have on the every other Sundays with the Romans Bible study. And then the men right now, they're meeting every Wednesday that the women are, because we're men and we need more work. And so we're studying disciplines of a godly man. I, if you're a man, I need you in this group because you need the men in this group in your life. This book is life changing. We also have some men that get together when the women are doing their Bible study for biscuits and gravy. We call that an interest group because those guys are interested in eating. It's not necessarily a Bible study, but, um, but they meet together and they talk about life and, and life is how we learn these names of God, the stories that we're telling with our life or that he's telling with our life. What's our second response? Besides just being in community and wanting to know how you know God and wanting to share how I know God, our second response should just be how unworthy I really am. The king is inviting me to sit at his table. And not just sit at his table, but he's inviting me to get to know him. He wants to teach me his titles, but he also wants us to develop that relationship that puts us on a first name basis. We spoke about this a couple weeks ago in men's group when we discussed the discipline of worship it's a really great, really great Wednesday night. When you learn that the infinite creator of the universe has orchestrated life so that I can know him, oh man, how can I respond in anything else but worship? I'm so unworthy, and yet he's given me everything. And not just given me everything, but ask me to come and sit with him, to get to know him. Let's pray. Father, we just are in awe of the story that you're telling, the story that starts in scripture and continues until my life today. That's woven with your character, your love, your redemption, you're a mighty God, a God who provides. You're the general of heaven's armies, but you're my counselor and my peace. And so Lord, as we move forward through this study of your names and we sit at the table with you, 
we just pray that you continue just lay us flat with how awesome you are. Help us know you more and help us be like you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys stand up. Let's sing this new song together.